choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 230 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Recovery, Nixon, and Quarantine. With the crew of Apollo 11 now on board the helicopter, they had a chance to adjust to 1G. Mike and Buzz did a few deep knee bends while Neil watched. Inside the biological isolation garments, it was difficult to communicate, and it was really hot, with no ventilation system. Thankfully, the trip to the Hornet was very quick, but by the time they landed on the flight deck, the heat was exhausting. Then the helicopter doors slid open, and Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins stepped out of the helicopter onto the lower deck of the Hornet, to the accompaniment of a brass band. They appeared to many like men from another world, outfitted from head to toe in gray-colored biological isolation garments. They peered through their mask, now completely covered with perspiration, and waved to a crowd of sailors and visiting dignitaries who they saw only dimly. Fortunately, someone had painted lines on the hangar deck to lead them to the mobile quarantine facility. Despite rubbery legs unaccustomed to Earth's gravity, they made it into the quarantine facility. A NASA doctor followed them and closed the thick windowed door behind them. Back at Mission Control, the celebration of the flight of Apollo 11 was beginning. The elevator will take recovery one down to the hangar deck where the crew uh, will enter the mobile quarantine facility. And the flags are waving and the cigars are being lit up. And clear across the big board in front is President John F. Kennedy's uh, message to Congress of May 1961. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. That has been accomplished. This control center becoming jammed with people as uh, people from the staff support rooms coming in here. We've never seen this many people in the control center at one time before. The mobile quarantine facility was essentially a modified aluminum trailer similar to an Airstream camper, but it had no wheels and it was parked on the deck of the ship. The camper was modified with filters, water tanks, and other items to provide a biological barrier between those inside and the rest of the world. The flight surgeon, Bill Carpenter, came into the trailer to give each of the astronauts a quick physical exam. 
Also, John Hirosaki, a mechanical engineer, joined the crew. John would handle housekeeping, cooking, and other mobile quarantine facility chores, but his main responsibility was toward Columbia and its cargo, which was hauled from the ocean and connected to the mobile quarantine facility by a plastic tunnel. This allowed the astronauts and John Hirosaki to have access to items inside Columbia and still maintain the quarantine. So, now there were five people in the mobile quarantine unit. After being gone from Earth for eight days, the astronauts' first priority was to take a shower. They had to take turns and not use much hot water, but they felt tremendously better after the shower. They were each given clean blue flying suits adorned with NASA and Apollo 11 patches, plus a button saying Hornet plus three, the motto for the carrier's crew for this particular cruise. Since they had a little time to kill before President Nixon came down to the deck where their quarantine trailer was located, the flight sergeant had brought them a special treat. Videos of newscasts from all over the world showing crowds of people and their reaction as they watched Neil and Buzz take those first steps on the moon. The astronauts were amazed to see the people's expressions of wonderment, their flag-waving cheers and celebrations. Across cultural barriers, there was something taking place of historic proportions. Early reports indicated that the moonwalk drew the largest television viewing audience in history, estimated at 500 million people, about 20% of the world's population at that time. To Buzz, it seemed like the entire world was having a party, and he couldn't resist turning to Neil and saying, Hey, look, we missed the whole thing. After the mission, Buzz always wished that he could have shared the exhilarating experience with everyone else on Earth as they watched the electrifying moments leading up to the lunar landing. Strangely enough, he felt like he missed sharing in their reaction and the emotion embodied by the sight of Walter Cronkite wiping away his tears. Before long, the crew heard the band playing Hail to the Chief as President Nixon marched to the window on the front of the trailer. The astronauts' view outside their window was a bit unnerving. A barrage of television lights nearly blinding them about 200 officers and dignitaries stood to the rear, and standing there amid all the hoopla was President Nixon. The president had a reputation for being serious and stoic, cold and calculating, but on this warm day in the western Pacific Ocean, he seemed ebullient. Nixon looked very fit and relaxed as he stood by the microphone. He practically did a little dance when he first saw the astronauts, as millions of people watched on live TV, President Nixon welcomed the astronauts back to the Earth. Here are a few excerpts from the broadcast.
I was thinking, as, as, as you know, as you came down, and we know it was a success, and it had only been eight days, just, just a week, a long week, that this is the greatest week in the history of the world since the creation. Because as a result of what happened in this week, the world is bigger, infinitely, and also, as I'm going to find on this trip around the world, and as Secretary Rogers will find that he covers the other countries in Asia, as a result of what you've done, the world's never been closer together before. And we just thank you for that. And I only hope that all of us in government, all of us in America, uh, that as a result of what you've done, we can do our job a little better. We can reach for the stars just as you have reached so far from the stars. We don't want to hold you any longer. Anybody have a, a last word? How about promotions? Do you think we could arrange something? I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, just pleased to be back and very honored that you uh, were so kind as to come out here and uh, welcome us back. Yeah. And uh, we look, look forward to getting out of this quarantine and, and uh, talking without having glasses. Great. Fine. And uh, incidentally, the, the speeches that you have to make at this dinner can be very short. And if you want to say fantastic or beautiful, that's all right with us. <laughs> Don't try to think of new, any new adjectives. They've all been said. And now I think, incidentally, that uh, all of us, uh, who the millions that are seeing us on television now, seeing you, uh, would feel as I do that, in a sense, our prayers have been answered. And I think it would be very appropriate if Chaplain Pierto, the chaplain of this ship, were to offer a prayer of Thanksgiving. And he would step up now. Chaplain, thank you. The president then left on his trip around the world. The Hornet is sailing to Honolulu. It arrives there tomorrow. And from there, the astronauts in their sealed container will be flown to Houston, where a somewhat roomier quarantine building awaits them. So far, there is no evidence whatever of any infection or of any unwholesome effects on the moon. If it turns out, as everyone expects, that there won't be any, then Apollo 11 will have been a rarity in human affairs, a total success, and a credit to the American people and to the human race. The ceremony lasted about 10 minutes with a lot of smiles and a lot of light-hearted banter going back and forth. The president remarked how the world seemed bigger now, but that its population had never before felt as close together as they did watching the mission unfold. In a jovial mood, the president joked a bit with the astronauts, noting that Einstein's theory of relativity decrees that the astronauts have aged a bit less than their fellow Earthlings during the days they spent speeding through space. He also invited the astronauts' wives and the astronauts to dinner. The chaplain said a prayer of thanksgiving, and the band played the national anthem and another round of Hail to the Chief. The Hornet was now steaming for Pearl Harbor, where the mobile quarantine facility would be transferred via a flatbed truck to a jet cargo airplane flown to Houston and then put in the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. The time on the Hornet passed quickly and agreeably inside the trailer. The astronauts had more ceremony to attend through the glass as they exchanged extravagant compliments with the ship's captain and crew. Then, although it was still 
early afternoon in the Pacific. Their Houston watches said it was past toddy time, and they declared the bar officially open. The quarantine was to last 21 days, starting at the time of their possible infection, the day Buzz and Neil landed on the moon. With a little over three days in Columbia and almost three in the mobile quarantine facility, that left two weeks in the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. Collins figured it would take two weeks to write all their post-flight reports anyway, so as long as they and the mice stayed healthy, their post-flight regime would not be too much different from that of previous flights. On the way to Hawaii, Collins found time to help John Hirosaki retrieve everything he needed from Columbia. The astronauts also unloaded their flight plans, checklists, etc., to refresh their memories for the debriefings and to help in writing their reports. On the afternoon of the second day, while the astronauts sat around their communal table looking at a pile of lunar module books, Collins noticed that gunmetal gray flecks from the books were dirtying up the tabletop. Casually, he wiped them off onto the floor with the flat of his hand. The flight surgeon was aghast. Moon dust in the scuppers. In the evening of the second day, Collins decided to mark his presence in Columbia. It didn't seem right to him to abandon Columbia without a second glance. He went back into Columbia and wrote, quote, Spacecraft 107, alias Apollo 11, alias Columbia, the best ship to come down the line. God bless her, Michael Collins, CMP, end quote. When the crew reached Pearl Harbor, the mobile quarantine facility was hoisted and scissor-lifted onto a flatbed truck. There were people everywhere. The truck moved slowly through the streets from Dockside to Hickam Air Force Base with stops along the way for an official welcome by the governor and other unofficial delays due to the crowd. The astronauts waved frantically but were extremely grateful that the glass of the trailer protected them from autograph seekers. Then, finally, the mobile quarantine facility was placed inside a C-141 jet transport bound for Ellington Air Force Base. The astronauts arrived at Ellington in the middle of the night, but that didn't prevent a large crowd of people turning out to see them. The people waited patiently as the trailer was moved from the airplane. There was a little difficulty getting it moved at first, but when they did, the trailer was towed around into position next to the reviewing stand. Mayor Lewis Welch welcomed them, as did a host of NASA officials. And then, blinking in the relentless glare of the TV lights, the astronauts' wives were thrust forward, and each astronaut had a brief conversation with his wife. Then... They were moved again, out through the gate and down the highway toward the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. Again, like Hawaii, there was bedlam in their path, except this time it was the middle of the night and not as easy to see out. They finally arrived at the manned spacecraft center, and the trailer was backed up against a warehouse door in the side of the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. 
As soon as the germ-proof barrier was sealed between them and the lunar receiving laboratory, the door was opened and they were free to investigate their new home. The lunar receiving laboratory had about 20 rooms, including bedrooms for each of the astronauts, a huge open area used as a lounge, a mess hall, a bar, an exercise room, a library, and a dining room. With the additional room, more staff was added until the total people in the lunar receiving laboratory was 15. The original astronauts, the flight surgeon and mechanical engineer from the Hornet, and now professional cooks, housekeepers, and even a PR man. Before the flight, NASA was concerned that a reporter might be bold enough to somehow crash through the glass and join them in the quarantine so that he could have exclusive stories from the astronaut. So NASA decided to put John McLeish in with the astronauts to dissuade such efforts, and it certainly did allow much better press coverage of their daily routine. But the astronauts did not like the invasion of privacy. They had actually complained before the flight to Deke Slayton about this plan, and Deke agreed with them. But he lost the battle. The astronauts had no dislike for John McLeish. It was just that it would have been nice to be off-duty in the Lunar Receiving Laboratory and not have everything they did reported to a world audience. Now the astronauts' days were filled with the technical story of Apollo 11, told over and over again. Locked behind glass panels, they conducted all-day briefing sessions for astronauts who would man the crews that followed theirs, for management, for the systems engineers, for the scientists, for the doctors, for the simulator people, and for the photography analyst. When they were not talking, they were writing, preparing their pilot's reports. Like good test pilots, they described how they flew the flight and gave recommendations for changes. Considering the complexity of their voyage, they had amazingly little to complain about, due primarily to the work done before them on Apollos 7, 8, 9, and 10. Mike Collins' primary complaint concerned the rendezvous procedures. He believed it was unduly complicated for a solo pilot having to press the computer buttons 850 times and constantly having to use the sextant. It was okay if the command module was working properly, but there was little time to cope with problems that might arise, or even to sit back and analyze trends as the two vehicles arced across the moon toward the point of rendezvous. Neil and Buzz had to explain to fascinated scientists their flicker flashes, streaks of light that they saw inside the darkened command module. Then there was a little excitement when a young lab technician came in contact with a lunar sample and had to join the group in quarantine. As the days passed, the men joked about being jailed, and at the close of one debriefing session, they called out to the engineers on the other side of glass, You know where to find us. We're not going anywhere. Buzz even put up a sign over the door reading, Please don't feed the animals. 
In the off hours, there were movies and card games. Somehow, Collins managed to beat Armstrong repeatedly at gin rummy. But time seemed to drag. At the end of one debriefing, when asked any other comments, Collins said quietly, I want out. While in the quarantine units, the astronauts had numerous medical checkups to ascertain whether their journey had any ill effects on them. There was some concern that even though they were all pretty healthy, exposure to radiation might cause a problem. They had little dose meters that they wore while in quarantine, and when they left, the doctors said that the radiation to which they had been exposed was nothing to worry about. The doctors determined that none of them had suffered any adverse effects from contact with the lunar dust or any other aspect of their journey. Physically, they were in good shape. In total, quarantine lasted for 21 days. Buzz, Neil, and Mike, nor anyone at NASA, actually feared that the astronauts had been contaminated. But it was better safe than sorry. Beyond that, the mandatory quarantine served another purpose. It kept Mike, Neil, and Buzz away from the public, and the public away from them, for a few weeks, until they had a chance to process all that they had experienced, to write their mission reports, as well as to debrief and help the Apollo 12 astronauts with any information they might have gained from their experience. Quarantine also provided time to pause and reflect on the events of their flight and try to understand it all. Freedom from quarantine finally came on a hot August night when the astronauts were released into a world changed, for at least a time, by what they had done. Armstrong hoped that the first lunar landing would inspire people to believe that seemingly impossible problems could be solved. As for its impact on their own lives, neither Armstrong nor his crewmates could guess what lay ahead. Until now, they hadn't had much time to think about it. But there would be months on the banquet circuit, including a world tour. Then each man would find his way into a new life. Salutations from the Buckeye State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 230 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11, Recovery, Nixon, and Quarantine. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. In case you hadn't heard, there is a new RSS feed for the first 20 episodes of the podcast. You can find it on the homepage on the right side. This means that the first 20 episodes are once again available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all your favorite pod catchers. To find them, you just search 
for Space Rocket History Archive. Today we salute my commercial space donors, of which there are two. Commercial space donors donate at least $90 per year and get to choose which commercial space company they prefer, such as SpaceX, Blue Origin, etc. Thanks for your continued support, commercial space donors. One other announcement. We are currently traveling and my access to email, Twitter, and Facebook is sometimes limited. If you do need to contact me, the best method is by email, mike at spacerockethistory.com. I had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. I left out a kind of interesting procedure the astronauts went through after they put on their bigs, you know, the biological isolation garments. They did this inside the capsule as it floated on the ocean. Then they opened the cat, the hatch and inflated their water wings and moved into the raft alongside the capsule. Then they began spraying each other with disinfectant and wiping each other down with cloths saturated with an iodine solution and with sodium hypochlorite. Supposedly, no lunar bugs could survive such a bath, although there was really nothing preventing the bugs from escaping into the sea. So I guess that wasn't a concern. So as they wiped each other down, ocean waves would occasionally break over the raft, and that would keep their bigs wet. (laughs) Now here's a little bonus clip on how that procedure was covered by mission control. And the first astronaut has been scrubbed down and the swimmer has started uh, decontamination processes on the big of the second astronaut. Scrubbed down on the second astronaut completed. And the third astronaut has been scrubbed down and now the uh, the astronauts are scrubbing down the swimmer. That clip was quite a bit longer. I edited out some of the uh, communications that just could not be distinguished at all. So it did take a little bit of time to scrub everybody off. Now, regarding the quarantine, of course, none of the astronauts wanted to go through it. Neil felt very strongly about it. And at the time, there was no evidence or scientific justification to quarantine the crew. But landing on the moon was a new thing, and in my opinion, it it would just be foolish to ignore the extremely low possibility that they could have been in some way contaminated by something that we hadn't discovered yet. So, when you can cover just about every possible contingency just by putting them through three weeks of quarantine then I think that they they should have done it. And they did do it. It was the safe thing to do. And by going through quarantine without getting sick, they pretty much proved that they didn't need to do it. So it was a very a big precaution, but I think it was the right thing to do on the first mission. Now, Neil had some rather harsh criticisms of the scientists that insisted on the quarantine. Here's a passage from his book. I'm going to quote this. 
quote, These hysterical hand-ringers, who were the same people who warned that a spacecraft landing on the moon would be gobbled up by hundreds of feet of dust, and if NASA was to successfully place a human on the lunar surface, it would take the agency several attempts before astronauts could overcome the hazards. These same doomsayers, forefathers, had warned Columbus he would sail off the edge of the earth, and now their descendants were warning that the Apollo 11 astronauts would bring back alien organisms that would contaminate earth. Their worries were so far-fetched, only Hollywood was capable of believing such nonsense. But that didn't stop some not-too-bright people in the media and on Capitol Hill from listening, end quote. So Neil, <laughs> Neil was not in favor of the quarantine. <laughs> okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Anthony from Berry Wine Plantations Incorporated in Maryland donated at the Orion level. Fergus O. donated at the Apollo level. Christopher H. from Georgia donated at the Mercury level. Nathan S. donated at the Vostok level. And Ryan L. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Okay, that brings our Patreons up to 140, the highest we've ever been. That is 10 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. And our overall donor total has reached 276, with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, Please consider supporting the podcast financially if you are able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it, and I have an item to give away this week to one of the 2017 donors. It is the coveted NASA 3 and one inch diameter meatball sticker. To select the winner, I gave every donor a number. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Graham McDonald. Graham, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will put this in the mail to you. I have several more of these stickers, so we'll have another drawing next week for the 2017 donor group. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage of our particular episode on all social media, and thanks to those who've already done so. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, I'm going to try to wrap up Apollo 11. I think we will cover the world reaction, including the Soviets and maybe some Alexei Leonov. We'll just have to see. I'm not certain exactly if I'm going to finish it next week or not, but I think I probably will. 
As I mentioned before, we are still traveling, and last week I visited the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio, and I didn't get to finish seeing it all, but I did get a chance to go back, and I have now seen it all. <laughs> I started in the newest building, which was Building 4, and that building, someone there said it was about 18 months old, and I think it was my favorite one. It was the Research and Development Gallery. They had the Apollo 15 capsule that was on loan. They had a Blue Gemini capsule, a Titan 5B laying on its side, a huge XB-70A. Gosh, that thing was impressive. Several more X-planes, including the X-15, which I had not seen in person before. The other end of the building was called the Presidential Gallery. Now, they had the Air Force One planes used by Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan. You could actually go inside and walk through these planes. That was nice, I will tell you. That was a lot of fun. Now, after I finished four, I went uh, toward three. Now, on the way to three... They have a missile gallery right in the middle. It's a uh, cylinder-shaped building there. And they have several missiles. And they even had an ICBM missile control room. So you could go and look and see what it looked like. Then I made it back to the part of Building 3 that I had not seen from last week. Where I found a B-2, of course, the SR-71 Blackbird. An F-117, to name a few. All things considered, this was the best museum I saw on this trip. If you ever have a chance, you need to see it. Now, we are heading home this week, and I will try to have episode 231 ready by next Thursday. So long for now.